Hello again. I just want to remind you that we have two Super Bowls every Sunday. Our prayer bowl and our praise bowl. So you put them in there, we'll pray for you. You're going you're gonna to get touchdowns all the way along, okay? Stan, would you please? Mark chapter 15, I'm going to read just a few verses. We're going to look at Jesus, the cross and Jesus' crucifixion this morning. Next week, we'll look at his death and burial. Uh, and then take communion each of these Sundays. So in Mark 15, verse 15 where we left off last week. So Pilate, Mark 15, 15, so Pilate wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison. And they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! Then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him. And bowing the knee, they worshiped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his own clothes on, and led him away to crucify him. So, Lord, please give us ears, a heart, just to contemplate, hear the things that you are speaking to us individually as we go through this this passage, we go through these things that you went through, that you endured such hostility from sinners against yourselves, that we should consider you who did this, that we would not become weary. We would not, we just keep, up, keep on keeping on. So Lord, the things that I've prepared, please break them fresh. Feed us, we're hungry. Help me to communicate your heart from your word to your people. And Lord, again, as we take communion, Examining ourselves in the context of the cross, please grant us a deep, deep, a deeper appreciation and love and awe and reverence for you. Please bless this time in Jesus' name. Everyone said amen. So you can be seated. So the last couple of studies we talked about how Jesus had six trials, three religious trials, and three civil trials. The religious ones are in Mark 14. The civil trials that we went through are in Mark 15. We're picking it up now as we get past the civil trials to the actual crucifixion, which was uh, between 8.30 and noon, this whole thing happened, the scourging and crucifying of Jesus. So as, we, as we've noted, the scriptures are almost silent as to the details of this horrible horrible experience of scourging and crucifixion. The scriptures do not dwell on the ex extreme cruelty of this mode of execution or the terrible suffering it entailed. J. Vernon McGee said, it's as though the Spirit of God drew a veil over it as if to say, there is nothing here with which an idle mind should be occupied. It is too horrible, unquote. Many of us had to turn away when we watched the movie The Passion. Brutal. Now, I will not be showing any clips, but I want to include some of the details for us to consider just for a few minutes this morning in this study. Again, it says, consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. So these are things in, in communion and taking communion also. We're proclaiming his death. We're proclaiming the cross when we take communion. We're remembering him by proclaiming the cross. So many research articles have been written on the scientific details of scourging and crucifixion. 
One of the first major articles came out in 1986 in the Journal of the American Medical Association, or JAMA. It is entitled, On the Physical Death of Jesus Christ, which was written collaboratively by William Edwards, Wesley Gable, and Floyd Hosmer. And I'm going to be quoting from that as well as just summarizing some of the parts this morning. They begin, it's our intent to present not a theological treatise, but rather a medically and historically accurate account of the physical death of one called Jesus Christ. Flogging or scourging always preceded the, ex the execution of a capital sentence. Only women and Roman senators or soldiers were exempt from it, so it was male criminals. In the ancient world, crucifixion was viewed as the worst and lowest punishment that could be laid upon a non-Roman citizen. The victim was stripped, often tied to a post, and beaten on the back by several guards using short leather whips studded with sharp pieces of bone or metal. Often, this punishment was fatal. Now, when I think of Jesus going through this, I'm saying we are standing on holy ground. This is all a part of God's plan for our salvation. So this, this article said, as the Roman soldiers repeatedly struck the victims back with full force, the iron balls would cause deep contusions and the leather thongs and sheep, and sheep bones would cut into the skin and subcutaneous tissues. Then, as the flogging continued, the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. Pain and blood loss generally set the stage for circulatory shock. The extent of the blood loss may well have determined how long the victim would survive the cross. The severe scourging with its extreme excru excruciating pain and the blood loss left Jesus in a pre-shock state. Hematidrosia, tedrous, I don't know how you say that word, is a condition in which human beings sweat blood due to the extreme levels of stress rendered his, which would render his skin in anguish. So in Luke 22, and being in agony, before the scourging, before the crucifixion, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his, his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Jesus experiences in the garden in prayer. As he's facing the cross, but more than that, he's facing Satan and all of his, his uh, getting him to avoid the cross. So it's so excruciating that Jesus actually went through this, this uh, thing called hematidrosis. So the physical and mental abuse meted out by the Jews and the Romans, as well as the lack of food, water, and sleep, all contributed to Jesus' incredibly weakened state. Therefore, even before the actual crucifixion, Jesus' physical condition was beyond critical. In Isaiah, it says this, just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. J. Vernon McGee interpreted this, he did not even look human, beaten so mercilessly. Just a bloody piece of quivering human flesh, and he said it was unspeakable. So in Mark, as we just read, Pilate releases Barabbas, verse 15. Jesus is scourged, Pilate's soldiers crown and mock him, verses 16 through 20. Pilate hoped that in flogging Jesus, the people would take pity and be satisfied. 
So Pilate could have released Jesus, but he failed to do so. So we pick this, John fills in the parallel uh, um, details. In John 19, verse 4, Pilate then went out again and said, Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. We looked at this last week a little bit. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I, found no fault, I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. So Pilate then questions Jesus again. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid. So Pilate's in this predicament. It says he was more afraid. He's already afraid what's going on here. He senses there's something serious going on here, obviously. He knows that Jesus is a different kind than all others. He says he was more afraid and went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then Pilate said to him, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Jesus answered, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin, has the greater guilt. Now, I believe that one was Caiaphas. He knew what he was doing and had been plotting it for a long time. He knew the scriptures. He had been given every opportunity to examine the evidence, but hardened his heart against Jesus until he finally pulled the whole thing off, initiating the proceedings leading to Jesus' arrest, sentencing, and death. I believe that one is Caiaphas, the high priest. So Pilate tries again to release Jesus, but he doesn't do it in John 19, 12. For then on, for from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out saying, if you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. So Pilate then sentences Jesus and delivers him to be crucified. Again in John 19, when Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. But they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered him to them to be crucified. Then they took Jesus and led him away. The Son of God now, given his life as a ransom for all to be testified in due time. He bears his cross in John 19, 17. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. So again, this article, after the scourging and the mocking at about 9 a.m., the Roman soldiers put Jesus' clothes back on him and then led him and the two thieves to be crucified. Jesus apparently was so weakened by the severe flogging that he could not carry the crossbar from the praetorium to the site of crucifixion one-third of a mile away. Remember, he fell under it. Now, every victim of crucifixion was forced to carry this somewhere around 100-pound crossbar to which his hands were tied and upon which he was executed. Rome used the public execution to communicate a very clear message to the people, and that is, do not defy the Roman government. Now, I would say that the cross is God's clear message 
that the wages of sin is death. In Romans, we read that, 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you not love that? But. The wage of sin is death, but the gift of God brings to us, gives us eternal life, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord, the one being crucified. Ezekiel says, the soul which sins shall surely die. That is the sentence. In 2 Corinthians verse five, chapter 5, verse 18, now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. How? Not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you, be reconciled. We On Christ's behalf, be reconciled. You know, it's just incredible that as believers, God is pleading through us for people to come to Christ and be reconciled to God. What an incredible thing that is. What a privilege that is. So he says, for he made him, how did he reconcile us? He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God through him. A lot there to talk about, but we'll leave it at the the scriptures. So Simon of Cyrene bears the cross now in verse 21, back in Mark 15. I hope you're following me. Verse 21. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon of Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. Almost like he was, he was there, but he wasn't necessarily planning to be there or whatever. He's there, though. It is suggested, well, first of all, in this article, Simon of Cyrene was summoned to carry Christ's cross, and the processional then made its way to Golgotha, also known as Calvary, which is an established uh, crucifixion site. So that's where they brought them. Now, it is suggested that Simon and his sons Alexander and Rufus were known by those in the church in Rome. In Romans 16, 13, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. So Simon was a Cyrene. It is possible that this time he was an unknown pilgrim from some 800 miles away. He's just there. It's also possible that he got saved as a result of this encounter, not only with Jesus, but with Rome, because he, could, he had no choice but to obey the Roman gu- the soldier, and to do what he was told. He had to do that. And because of that then, he carried Jesus' cross, and some would suggest, which I think is fascinating, some would suggest that in that moment there, when he was carrying Jesus' crossbar, he actually came in face-to-face with Jesus, and possibly that was the catalyst to him being saved. And I think about 800 miles away. He's there. Here's the soldier. One guy in the crowd has him go. And it just, God's ways are incredibly miraculous. And how he brings someone to Christ is so unique in every situation. But he does it. He lines up the things so that people can come and have an encounter with Christ. And maybe it's through the government. Who knows? And this, I think this time of, we're in the, in the political season, we're probably going to have a lot of encounters with Jesus because of the government. <laughs> so anyway, now this is incredible also. Again, his crucifixion, what happened on the way to 
to Golgotha. Jesus stops in all of his agony. He stops to minister to a group of weeping women. Imagine that. You talk about his mysterious ways. In Luke chapter 23, and a great multitude of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus turning to them, this is incredible, turning to them said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed, the days are coming in which they will say, blessed are the barren wombs that never bore. Things are going to get bad because of their rejection of Christ. Jesus already said that. And the breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? There, are, there were also two other criminals led with him to be put to death. So Jesus actually stops to minister to these women who are weeping for him. So then Jesus brought to Golgotha, on verse 22, and they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of the skull. So here Jesus' clothes, except for a linen loincloth, again were removed, thereby probably reopening the scourging wounds. He then was offered a drink of wine mixed with myrrh, but after tasting it, refused the drink. So the soldiers offered Jesus a, a uh, sour wine to mix. Now we'll get this, because actually it was two times that Jesus offered this wine. This time he didn't take it, he took it the second time. So next week when we talk about this, we'll get into the details on that. But Jesus endured all of this. Listen, he endured all of it for you and for me. He has us in mind, the women in mind, as he stopped. And then in verse 26, the inscription of his accusation was written above the king of the Jews. So here is Jesus' kingship displayed for all to see and a prophecy that, would, that all would begin to understand and know after his resurrection. This placard is nailed to the cross and Pilate, is Pilate's last taunt to the Jews, the priests. Now, who, pray tell, while watching these things would ever think to say, that's my king? Think about that a moment. That's my king. Really? Yeah, he's not only my king, he's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's God incarnate, hanging on a cross because he's God who loves us. It's incredible. And then these two criminals are crucified with Jesus in verse 28. With him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. In Isaiah 53, which was written 700 years before this ever happened, we read in verse 12, therefore, I'll divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sins of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. This incredible prophecy, the detailed prophecy of what would happen on the cross. So also, his first saying from the cross in Luke chapter 23, and when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. 
Are you kidding me? I'm not. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In Isaiah, we just read it, he made intercession for the transgressors. I mean, so much to try and fathom. You can hardly fathom it. Jesus there interceded for his haters and his executioners. He interceded, I believe, to postpone their judgment, both personally, for as long as God gave them breath, but then also nationally, which would last about 40 years. He's given them additional opportunities to repent and be saved. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. In Acts, following the healing of a lame man in Jerusalem, Peter preached to the crowds as they were in awe of this miracle. And we read in Acts chapter 3, and this is a little longer passage, but I want to read it with you. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people. Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us? as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. He's pointing back to what happened. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed, interesting, you killed the Prince of Life whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses, and his name, through faith in his name, he has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him, Jesus, has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Jesus is alive. Jesus is working. The Holy Spirit is among them. Yet now, brethren, now notice, I know that you did it in ignorance. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. This was God's doing. So he says there, repent therefore. Get it right with God now. Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And that he may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before whom heaven must receive until the time of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. He is coming again. It's this, again, Jesus here in interceding for them is giving them the opportunity in the future, after the cross, after the resurrection, to come to him and get it right with God. Now, the same Peter who preached to the crowds also penned this follow-up. Second Peter chapter three, but beloved, do not forget this one thing. Now with the Lord, one day is a thousand years. And a thousand years is one day. God is timeless. He's eternal. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to what? Repentance. That's the gospel. How long did God wait for you? How long did God wait for me? What moment in time did that thing sort of become a real thing? Not sort of, it became real. When I was 10 years old, I received Christ. Many years, many years after this whole thing happened. And to this day, it's still the same story. God is not slack, but is long-suffering. Not only that any should perish, but it all should come to repentance. So the question bears, the, it must be asked, have you repented? 
and receive Jesus Christ as God's provision for your sin? Have you repented? Have you come to Christ? We're going to be taking communion, a good time to think about that. And if you are, you can take communion with us. Because in that we're declaring, we're proclaiming the cross and what it's done for us. In verse 24, and when they crucified and they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine that every, to determine that every man should take, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. So the belongings of, this, of the condemned became the property of the executioners. Again, in Psalm 22, I count all my bones, I look at, they look and stare at me, they divide my garments among them. So Jesus there says, I, he, you know, he's hanging on the cross, he's watching this. Prophetically, Psalm 22 talks about that. And for my clothing, they cast lots, so incredible. And then the second saying comes from the cross in Luke chapter 22. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly will receive the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. It's pretty incredible from one who, used, who just a moment ago was blaspheming him the same, but he came to repentance. He came to understand something, and he's listening to his compatriot over there and saying, wait, 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 wait. We deserve this, but not him, not this man. He's done nothing wrong. All the ways that God brings souls to himself. Then they, he, said to Jesus, he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You're the king. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, to you, today, you'll be with me in paradise. Oh, you're going to die, but you're going to be with me in paradise. There's a video that I watched a while ago. Pastor Alistair Begg. I'd like you to watch this because I think it's so filled. It's about four minutes, but I'd like to watch this together again for me tonight, this morning. Without the preaching of the cross, without preaching the cross to ourselves all day and every day, we will very, very quickly revert to faith plus works as the ground of our salvation. So that to go to the old uh, Fort Lauderdale question, if you were to die tonight and, and, and you were getting entry into heaven, what would you say? If you answer that, and if I answer it in the first person, we've immediately gone wrong. Because I, because I believed, because I have faith, because I am this, because I am continuing. Loved ones, the only proper answer is in the third person, because he, because he. Think about the thief on the cross. Oh, what an immense, I can't, I, I can't wait to find that fellow one day to ask him, how did that shake out for you? Because you were, you were, you were, you were cussing the guy out with your friend. You'd never been in a Bible study. You never got baptized. You never, you didn't know a thing about church membership. And, and yet, and yet you made it. You made it. How did you make it? That's what the angel must have said, you know, like, what are you doing here? Well, I don't know. What, what do you mean you don't know? 
Well, because I, I don't know. Well, you know, we're, uh, did Excuse me, let me get my supervisor. They go get the supervisor ranger. So we have just a few questions for you. First of all, are you, are, you, are, you, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? <laughs> the guy said, I've never heard of it in my life. And, and what about, uh, let's just go to the doctrine of scripture immediately. This guy's just staring. And eventually in frustration, he says, on, on what basis are you here? And he said, the man on the middle cross said, I can come. Now, now, that's the, that is the only answer. That is the only answer. And if I don't preach the gospel to myself all day and every day, then I will find myself beginning to trust myself, trust my experience, which is part of my fallenness as a man. If I take my eyes off the cross, I can then give only lip service to its efficacy, while at the same time living as if my salvation depends upon me. And as soon as you go there, it will lead you either to abject despair or a horrible kind of arrogance. And it is only the cross of Christ that deals both with the dreadful depths of despair and the pretentious arrogance of the pride of man that says, you know, I can figure this out and I'm doing wonderfully well. No, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's why Luther says most of your Christian life is outside of you in this sense that we know that we're not saved by good works. We're not saved as a result of our professions, but we're saved as a result of what Christ has achieved. Without I love that. It just says it all. I don't know what your theology is and all that stuff, but. The basic truth of the matter is, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. I love what he said. The man on the middle cross told me I could come. That's the cross. That's what happened there, right there. So if anyone's questioning, I always point, well, how about the thief on the cross? Jesus said, most sure I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. When you die, you will be with me. To a man who had never repented his whole life. But on that moment there on the cross, Alistair Begg said, I, if I go there, which means living as if my salvation depends on me, it will result in abject despair or horrible kind of arrogance. No, he said, we must preach the cross to ourselves every day. He quotes a, the hymn before the throne of God above. It goes like this, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God the justice satisfied to look on him and pardon me. So when we take, we're not right now, but we'll be taking communion. 
Hold these things as treasures in your heart. That Jesus paid it all. And we proclaim his death. We proclaim the cross. We remember him in the bread. We remember him in the cup. And then Jesus had this third saying in John chapter 19. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. And you remember when Jesus was eight years old, or eight days old, and Simon prophesied, Simon prophesied, Simeon prophesied over him in Luke chapter 2. And he said, he blessed him and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is destined for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. He's talking about the cross. And here's Mary now at that moment in, in her life where this thing that Simeon said is now happening. And the soul pierces. And now Jesus looks right into her soul. He knows her deep sorrow. He knows her deep grief. And he makes sure that she knows John's going to take care of her. And then in verse 19 of, of uh, 29, excuse me, of Mark 15. And those who pass by blaspheming, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you destroy the temple and build it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. Nonstop to the end. He was enduring such hostility from sinners against himself. Mocking him, wagging their heads. Those who passed by, the chief priests with the scribes, those who were crucified with him, those who stood by, they're all mocking him as he's hanging on that cross for our sin. In Psalm 22, we read this prophetically, but I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying, he trusts in the Lord, let him rescue him, let him deliver him since he delights in him. Verse 14, many bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. That's what's going on for Jesus. So then in verse 31, Mark 15, likewise the chief priests also mocking among themselves with the scribes said, he saved others himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Ongoing. The chief priests were viciously cruel, yet unintentionally are testifying to the truth. The Christ, the King of Israel, they call him that. These jeers of the priests and others are the strongest possible proof that Jesus did indeed claim to be the King, claim to be Messiah, claim to be the Savior. Otherwise, this mockery would have no point. Ironically, their words expressed profound spiritual truth. They didn't even know it. If Jesus was to save others by delivering them from the penalty and power of sin... He could not rescue himself. That's why he gave himself for our sin. He would not save himself because he came to save you and me on the cross. The whole scene should cause us to cringe in some ways in shame and brokenness. 
that this viciousness beyond any kind of ordinary human hatred was actually possible from the human heart. Forgive them, they know not what they do. If only they had known that this is God the Son they clothed with purple. That he was their creator who they crowned with thorns. He was the sustainer of the universe that they mocked as powerless. He's the Lord of life and glory that they tortured to death. He was the Prince of Peace that they silenced, but only for a little while. Jesus endured all of it for you and for me. It reveals the wickedness that sin made a reality in our lives, in our hearts. One soldier was moved and said, truly this is the Son of God, as Jesus hung there and died. It's extremely difficult to process the barbarity and evil human heart is capable of. It's difficult to understand the horrible things that one human being can do to another. Mass evils like the Nazi Holocaust, 9-11, Hamas unleashing such evil against Israel, human beings. Yeah, the hidden evils where adults are sexually trafficking little children, where doctors are aborting babies. What happened? What happened? It was very good. Why is it like this? You know the answer. It's because of sin. You think sin is not that bad? Think again. You think sin is not that serious? Think again. You don't think God is serious about the badness of sin? Think again. Sin is seriously bad. And how serious is God about it? It's the cross. Jesus willingly suffered and died because of sin in order to put an end to it. The silent son, the guiltless one, delivered to die that the guilty might go free. That's you and me, the cross. The sentenced substitute, the not guilty, became our pardon before a holy, just God. The suffering servant, the punishment that was our due, was laid on him, the cross. Jesus is not looking, was not looking for sympathy then, nor is he now. Yes, it was a monstrous verdict of unrighteousness and inconceivable cruelty. But Jesus was not suffering for himself. He need not to. He endured all of it for you and for me. Now you might say, as I do, I can't even begin to contemplate these things and comprehend them. And I say, exactly. Exactly. It's not our sympathy that Jesus is wanting. It's our souls. And if we will come to him and confess with our mouth, we will be saved. That's the gospel. And that's what we remember every time we take communion. 
this incredible, unfathomable truths that Jesus died on the cross, who might be forgiven our sins, declared righteous, and lived lives full of the Holy Spirit in perfect fellowship with God. And so, we should not come to the cross with a feeling of defeat or sympathy for the sufferer. Can I have the worship team come out? We should walk, and I think we have been and will today and next week, reverently through these scenes and welling up in our hearts thanksgiving to God for his incredible gift, so great a salvation. That's what communion is about. That's what the cross brings us to again and again and again. You see, the law was given by God so that we would know our guilt and also know the provision that God made for our guilt, for our sin, through his only begotten son who died on the cross for it. You see, if there's no cross, there's no Christ. If there's no Christ, there's no Christian. If there's no Christian, there's no Christianity. We are of all men most to be pitiable. But now is Christ risen. And the cross is everything to the Christian faith. It's our propitiation, our salvation, our reconciliation, our justification, our sanctification, our glorification. There's a lot of big terminology here, a lot of theology. It gets down to this. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. I know the stain that sin has done, but Jesus Christ has let me let it go. So as, we, as you receive the cups, and I'll just preface it with this, those things are, we're going to be going back to cups and, you know, not this... And last time we did it, well, maybe I shouldn't tell you, but they were stale. So we're doing this, we've been doing it, brought in, but we're going to go, but we're just going to use up what we have. So I'm, I'm saying that to tell you that there's a cellophane cover on the first, to get the bread, take that off first. And then, the 12, otherwise you're going to have juice all over you. Sin had left a, 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 a stain. <laughs> but really, this is a sacred time. We should walk worthy of the calling with which we were called because of the cross. We should walk worthy of God who calls into his own kingdom and glory. So it's a sacred time where every Christian remembers that what Jesus accomplished on the cross is everything. I don't know what you're, what you're dealing with, guilty-wise, sin, all that, but Jesus paid it all. The cross is the place where we declare his death until he comes. The cross, the community is a place where we come to Christ and remember him so we can forget our sin. So Paul said, I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you take the, eat the bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, the cross, till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. 
but let a man examine himself, so let him eat and, and the bread and drink of the cup. So it's a time to examine ourselves. Now, how do we do that as you're taking the cups? How do we do that? What do we to examine? Let me suggest to you here, it's to examine myself at the cross is to proclaim that Jesus is the way, the truth, and life, and there's no other way. To examine myself at the cross is to proclaim that Jesus paid it all, and all to him I owe. These are the things that we're examining. Have I moved away from these things in my heart, my relationship with God? To examine myself at the cross to proclaim my repentance and confess my sin. It's to proclaim my weakness in giving in to temptation, to proclaim my wandering tendencies to stray from God and to humble myself before him and say, thank you, Jesus. It's to examine myself at the cross to proclaim my need for him in all things. I need him how I need him. To proclaim my need for his presence. Is that for you this morning? That I'm lost and hopeless without him. To proclaim my need for his power. That I'm helpless without him. Proclaim my need for his provision. Because I'm empty without him. To examine myself at the cross to proclaim my responsibility. I can lay my life down for him by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. And God is in that process of sanctifying my life. As I have been forgiven, so I am to forgive. Is there someone you need to forgive this morning? As I have been loved, so I am to love. What about the unlovable ones in our lives? As I have been blessed, so I'm, my life is to be a blessing to others. More blessed to give than to receive. As I have received freely, so I am to give freely and generously and hilariously, the Bible says. As I have been comforted, so I am to comfort others. Is there someone that needs comfort in your life? See, these are the things that we're examining. I've been shown patience by God. Am I patient? I've received mercy. Am I merciful? So these are the things as we sing this song. Would you just close yourself in with the Lord by the Holy Spirit and just examine yourself, receive afresh, and then we'll take them together once we all have taken a couple minutes through this song just to bring our hearts to God this morning.